It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Dr. Fred Luskin, <laughs> welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Hello there. Dr. Fred, welcome to the show. The timing of this is impeccable for me. And I know our audience, whether they watch this in a week, a month or a year, it'll be relevant for them because today we are talking about the subject of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I got a real, real doozy for you to start off with. What evolutionary purpose does holding a grudge serve? I mean, uh, you know, most of the stuff that human beings can do serves biological and evolutionary purpose. So being angry is protective, you know, like I, I get geared up to defend myself remembering that you were angry um, is really a good way to not get taken advantage of the same way again. Joining with other people and having a shared enemy is a very powerful tribal bonding and protective experience. So those are all useful. At the same time, we need off switches. And those are harder than the on switches. So as as animals and as vulnerable animals, we're designed with quick trigger on switches of arousal and threat to protect ourselves. Then we join with other people to share that perception of threat. And we create stories around them that give us this narrative of how bad something is. That's essential for survival. The problem is, um, again, it needs that off switch. It needs the the threat is done. Or the response now is out of proportion to the hurt. Or time has passed and it's not the same person and I'm not the same person. Or, wow, I need to reevaluate that being angry for a while has given me the space to be safe enough so that I can reevaluate the experience. Those are all necessary also to moving forward, make the best decisions for your life. At some point, it becomes absolutely smartest to no longer need that resentment. It's just, it's, it's an extra piece of weight. So it's a progression but the problem is, is when people don't go through the progression, they kind of dam up their evolution. They 
they put a block to it. I'm stuck in being angry or I'm stuck in being victimized. And um, it's giving too much power to pass negative experiences to define us today. Why did you write your book, Forgive for Good? Why did I want my book? Why did you um, write? Why did you write your book? I started the Stanford Forgiveness Project because I was miserable because I was very badly hurt and could not forgive. And that had my suffering went on for a number of years. And I was incapable of moving on. And I spent a lot of energy blaming somebody else for like my life almost. I felt very stuck and, and very frustrated. And one day my wife came to me and said, Fred, you know, I, I love you, but I don't like you as much that, you know, like you're becoming a pain in the ass, like shut up already and move on. Like, Grow up. And, and, you know, she had probably said that two dozen times before. I just hadn't heard it. But that moment I heard it and it, it, it created a little crack in the, the, the self-pity and the self-righteousness that kept my victim story in place. And all of a sudden, a little light came in. And it's not so simple anymore. It's not just they're bad, I'm good. It got a little more nuanced. And, and once there's space in there where you're not like addicted and stuck to that perception, all of a sudden I realized I'm not free at all. Like this is horrible. You know, they, they go jump and I go how high. And um, it created in me a, besides being, very concerned about how much I was disappointing her. Um, it created in me a clear sense that I had something to learn. And so I set upon learning that for myself, like Fred, you've got a hole that you've dug here. You got to figure out a way to dig yourself out. So that was the imprimatur for the whole project. Then when I did rescue myself from this situation and did forgive this person and did meet them again with some equanimity and did resume a friendship, which has continued for this all this time, I was about to get my PhD from Stanford and I thought, well, I have to do a dissertation. Um, why not do something that I couldn't do that I stumbled on? Let's see if it's effective for others. So I turned my learning into an experimental research project that worked. And then I got grant money to replicate that research project. And, you know, when I started this 25 or so years ago, there was nobody, I mean, barely anybody talking about this from the point of view of the university of data, of science, of secular methods. And so the field was open to me. And in part, it was open because I work at Stanford and that school has a tremendous reputation. I mean, 
you can talk about things from Stanford that, that get credibility that had I been delivering the same message from the university down the road, San Jose State, I would not have gotten to listen to. But that's what, the, that's what prompted me. And then I started to teach on campus. Once my research came out was effective, I started holding classes and teaching and um, saw that it could help a huge number of people with a huge number of issues in not that long a time. It, it turned out to be a very effective either adjunct to therapy or substitute for therapy. And, and I felt very lucky. I mean, I had just stumbled upon it to rescue myself. The, the reason I reached out to you, Fred, was off the back of a huge fire I had with my father. Mm-hmm. And for anyone that's listened to any of the other podcasts that I've done, I do talk about my father in various manners uh, with regards to health and well-being and this other stuff. And what happened, it was the, the worst fight we'd ever had. Mm. And, and, it, and it stemmed from, I've, I've looked back at this and I feel it originated, I just desperately wanted to help my father. And I understand that you cannot help someone who does not want help, firstly. And the it's frustra- hard. Yeah, the frustration associated that just build and build and build. And what happened after that huge fight was my ability to think just totally went. It's gone. Yeah, it's it's like you got a lobotomy. <laughs> well, you know, thinking requires some calmness of mind and body, some willingness to be dispassionate, and and some willingness to be thought wrong. That that's what thinking does. You were built, you were reacting, and then you were probably defending your reaction by what an idiot he is. And so you were adrenalizing your whole body over and over and over again. And a body flooded with adrenaline is prohibited from thinking because it's not safe. If if you're in real danger and your body floods with adrenaline, then that's to stop you from thinking because you want to just be reacting. So maybe the first, you know, two minutes from with your father of reacting and getting upset was a displaced form of care for him. But once the adrenaline takes hold and becomes reinforced by your words, reminding yourself what a jerk he is, then you literally lose your capacity to evaluate your own thinking process because like in nature, that would be really stupid for you to be out there somewhere where somebody's chasing you and you're asking yourself, well, do I really need to run? Are they really as dangerous as they look? You'd be, you'd be, you know, somebody's dinner and especially being a carnivore, you know, you'd want to be really careful about that. But it's, it's a, it's a, it's a well thought out process 
of making sure you don't make a certain kind of stupid decision. The problem is when that kind of thinking goes on for a period of time, you end up making other stupid decisions. And and that's the cost that we don't recognize when we're amping up to the adrenaline surge of anger. It's so interesting you you say that, Fred, because what happened was that off the back of that fight uh, led to some uh, a fight with my fiance and I. Her and I, our relationship is is pretty wonderful. Uh, we we very rarely have, and but it was all the negative energy that I brought into the house, uh, and and you know then and then it seemed like this cascade effect of of negative things happened. What are your thoughts on on the energy that we create from a spiritual point of view, whatever you want to call that? Well, what you practice becomes more likely what you will practice again. So the brain and nervous system want most of all to make habits so you can retain some ability to think in the moment and to anticipate the future. So you don't want to be evaluating the present and past relentlessly. What do I do? What do I do? Do I turn left? Do I turn right? So if you have a, if you started to create a habit and any very strong emotional reaction primes the brain for habit, because your brain assumes that you're not going to get this crazy unless it was a really good idea. It It doesn't discount the fact that you're nuts. It simply says, you know, mission control has gotten crazy, so we better really learn from this. So the anything that happens under strong emotional charge we learn from more quickly and deeply than things that are without emotional charge. So you, you, you started with one, like one trial learning of anger, and then it takes a while for the nervous system and brain to reset and say, well, wait a second. Yes, my father may have been wrong. And anybody who came in at the periphery of that, they're probably wrong too, like partner. But if I look around, the world's not quite as dangerous as I just thought it was that time. But it it takes the nervous system much longer to unwind danger than it does to amp up to it. So that's what happens. And that's often how people develop habits of anger is they don't take the time to check out, well, my perception, like, is it is it right? Yeah, maybe my father is such a jerk that I need to protect myself from his stupidity by getting myself all aroused. But um, I don't need to generalize that. Like, the whole world isn't that stupid. But it's, again, a big emotional Upheaval is designed to catch our nervous system's attention and keep it. So interesting. One of the one of the other components, Fred, that really um, surprised me was that I've always been really good at thinking quick on my feet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some people struggle with that. Some people are, you know, better at than I, but my ability to be so vicious with my words in in those highly stressful moments is quite astonishing. And it's yeah. like it's like I'm trying to kill the person with my words. I know. Are you able to explain what's happening there? Uh, and I would hope that you would use that learning to help you have some humility. Because humility is a very powerful quality to bring to relationships. That if, if you can remind yourself that I can go off towards my own father, that explains a lot in this world that I probably should be a little more careful to judge. You know, I, I can't expect the Israelis and Palestinians to make nice if I can't even be pleasant to my father. Like, you know, it's like there's a humility there. And, and that in and of itself will help protect you from it happening again. The second piece is a kind of compassion for yourself that we're all wired to have triggers and we're all sensitive to interpersonal strain and strife. And we all have these rules in our head about how other people should behave. The closer they are to us, like your dad, our rules become more immediate to us. Like, wait, dad's supposed to take care of himself. What's wrong with him? So all of those are in there. When you have some humility, which is, look what happened to me. It doesn't make me a bad person. It actually makes me human. But hopefully it'll knock some of your conceit away. And you'll be able to more clearly like see yourself, oh yeah, I'm like other people. I, I lose it sometimes. But when they lose it, sometimes you'll remember. Or you'll look at the process by how I lost it. Well, what was I telling myself? What was I telling myself right before I blew up? Well, that's a trigger for me. But you won't get any of that unless you can have some humility because otherwise the fault is always somebody else's and you don't have to check yourself out. Again, these are all biological mechanisms to protect us from danger and to allow us to survive in what can be a threatening um, like world that doesn't nourish us. The one thing you did say that that I would think is is very positive is that you said you tend to remain calm and your brain works most of the time in in quick solving or, you know, or processing that you're not like generally like a jittery, stressful person. So that means, one, you must have really told yourself bad things about your dad. Two, you were probably really frightened about something because you don't have this stuff without a lot of fear. And three, like we all have blind spots 
And we can say to ourselves, well, it's good to learn about them. Like, okay, here's a big blind spot for me. So I know that when I go back into relationship with dad, I need to be extra careful. You know, it's not what he does. It's me. I need to be extra vigilant and extra good natured to him. And whatever it takes for me to retain my center, if I still feel like I want to criticize dad, I can do that. But that's different from being pissed at him. Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it, Fred. And and because a lot of the the self-development work that I've been doing uh, over the last few years especially has been around boundary setting, not not just with family but with friends and uh, ex-colleagues or whatever. And and in reading your book, there's many examples that I was getting not agitated but frustrated with the character, thinking <laughs> if only if only they had set a stronger boundary for themselves, they wouldn't be in the situation. How important is, is boundary setting in the whole subject of forgiveness? complex question boundary setting is always important but um, so is flexibility so you can set boundaries and you should set boundaries and it's important to know your limits and things like that and it's important to recognize that they're not always going to be honored so that's the subtle nature of this. You know, like you tell somebody, be on time, and they're late. And then you say, next time, you know, be on time, and they're late. And then the third time, maybe you say it louder, be on time. You know, you've been late twice, and then they're late again. So you're setting a boundary. But at the other end, The flexibility allows you to say, well, maybe this is just a person as much as I want untimeness. Maybe it means nothing to this person. Like they just may be different than I am. That's it's like the basic diversity question. You know, do they do they see it the same way? Do they believe what I believe? So you can have your boundaries and say, be on time. But you also need some, again, humility and flexibility that allow you to deal with the real world because not everybody's jumping up and down to honor your boundaries. The last piece of that is if there are boundaries that are really important to you, you have every right to let people know that if they break this boundary again, this is what you're going to do. You know, if you're late one more time, I'm not making another date with you. That's perfectly legitimate. Or if you come home drunk one more time, you're gone. The peace that we don't need is fury. That's simply a sign of our weakness and our fear. Boundaries are strengths. Most of the time, fury is fear and weakness. I don't know how to say it. I can't get them to do what I need. I can't get the world to be the way I want. So I puff myself up. And sometimes that works. But when we see it doesn't work, that's the the part of the time 
when often we make life much more of a mess for us than it needs to be. So if you had gotten pissed at your dad and somehow in there said, you know, this being pissed isn't helping things, right? You know, I may think dad's 100% wrong, but me being pissed does not appear to be making things better. So there's nothing wrong with being pissed. It's holding on to it that's, that often um, interferes with our functioning. Yeah, it's an interesting one, Fred. I uh, The reason for this, the boundary settings with certain people is that any time with them is so becomes so agitating that it, it does lead to a fight. And so I, I've made the decision where I would rather just have no contact with that person at all. Of course. And, you know, that, that, that um, example of someone who's late three times, in my own head, just listening to you say that story, it'd be like, they're dead. <laughs> they're dead. Like they are, because they are now dis- they are deliberately disrespecting me. And you're saying, I need to, just before I get angry, <laughs> just like, just relax a little bit and just try and empathize with maybe some external extenuating factor, maybe. What I was saying is there, there was a, a famous psychologist in the United States who was a pro, like a protege of Oprah called Dr. Phil. And Dr. Phil in the 90s used to ask people all the time, how's that working for you? Like that was his famous line. And and that should be our famous line. How's that working for me? Not whether I'm right, not whether I'm wrong, but how is my method, how is my approach working for me? Sometimes, like when you describe, like sometimes you never want to see them again. That's the adrenaline-backed nervous system leading to fight or flight. So fight or flight is I'm mad at you. I want to beat you up or I want to run away. That's the default of a nervous system or an organism under threat. The problem is it contains no actual thinking. It's simply hormones hijacking your brain to keep you safe. Sometimes you need that. So if let's say dad was being or someone's being actually abusive to you, then it's good that that hormone comes in and says, get me out of here. I don't I don't deserve this. This isn't a good place for me. I need to go someplace. Then it's effective. It's a it's a solution to a problem. But if you find that you are offering that solution to different people at different times, then it's becoming a solution looking for a problem, not a solution to a problem. And it means that your body has too much adrenaline or is releasing the adrenaline too easily. And that's what's going on in your nervous system when you want to just walk away or give up it's a form of fight or flight 
we're talking about some relatively low-level issues in the grand scheme of the world, Fred, would you agree? Um, Fights with our parents versus, you know, a someone who's been on the receiving end of, you know, sustained years of sexual abuse from a parent or a relative. Is there any instance where forgiveness does not apply? Well, there are all sorts of temporal instances. So if somebody's hitting you, that is not the moment to forgive. If somebody raped your daughter, Uh, the next week or month is not the time to forgive. If somebody um, drove drunk and and hurt you very badly in a hit and run accident, you do not forgive quickly. Longer term, it's a different story because if you forgive too quickly or you try to, You're usually doing it to mask the pain. If you don't forgive for too long, then you're usually doing it again to mask the pain, the pain of a kind of helplessness, and you don't want to recognize how vulnerable you are. And most of the time, we just don't want to admit that the world got us. It just got us. It's like there's nothing we can do. So both from both sides, it's to avoid certain kinds of pain. The problem is um, healthy adaptation requires feeling the pain. So when you were mad at your dad, it's useful to feel that mad for a while. And then you start asking yourself, Um, How's that working for me? Is is that giving me the kind of relationship I want with my dad? Or is that leading me to be the kind of son that I want to be? And I would hope the answers are no, it's not working for you. But that doesn't mean it's wrong to get angry. And it doesn't mean you need to work it through like in a day. But there comes a point when you realize One, you can do better, but two, it's actually not getting you closer to your goals. So that time frame was about a month from the incident to an apology message, which was literally sent yesterday. And it was sent with no expectation of any response required and just basically said that I was, you know, no one deserved to be spoken to like that, um, as in me saying that to my father. He didn't deserve that, uh, and I, you know, no need to respond. Just wanted to get that off my chest. Is there a, a sweet spot for for the time that someone who's suffered from, you know, the drunk driver, the sexual abuse, the the murder? Is there any rough estimate of time that needs to pass? You know, there's there's multiple factors: the intensity of the hurt the mental health of the person who got hurt when they got hurt. So it takes longer for people who were less well put together when something happened than it does for people who are already coping and resilient. And it has something to do with the degree of damage. So 
if a drunk driver, um, you know, caused a broken pinky, that's going to be easier to get over than if they broke your, your whole pelvis and you're going to be in a wheelchair for two years. So there's no easy answer for that. But what there is, there's learning. So if you've been harmed, and so many people have, let's say you had abusive parents, it takes a, quite a while to recognize the damage they did to you. So you can't, you can't like just disregard that. So that takes time too. It takes time to learn the vocabulary of your feelings. To, to not just say, boy, my parents were assholes, but to have a, a more nuanced sense of, of what happened and what, what it is. And, and three, it sometimes takes time to start healing yourself, that it's not their fault forever. It may be their fault when you're 14, but when you're 40, it's not their fault anymore. It's just, it's just what happened. So there's no immediate time frame, but in the experience, you reach a point where you're not learning anything anymore. Like you're not growing in new things aren't coming you're not exploring part of the experience. So like with your dad, after a while, you realize that you're just an angry pain in the ass separate from anything else. You just realize that because no growth is going on. And that's the point when it's reached its purpose. And then it needs to be unwound. But sometimes that process of, you know, well, what was it that made me so upset? And what is it that I have to learn? That's where the anger is teaching you. And, and it has things to teach you. I look back at that week that it happened, Fred, and, and there was an anomaly uh, in my routine that I, I picked up on. And I hadn't exercised at all in the five days leading up to it, not even any sort of sustained walking. And I'm a very active individual. And I was no like, I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Um, yep. You know, I'm accumulating all of this pent up energy. That's and, right. Uh, which I just found so interesting. So I'm now, you know, the learning for me was, uh, you know, there was many learnings, but it's like, okay, need a, Keep to your keep to your exercise routine, Laban. Like keep tiring yourself out, lifting weights, doing your running. You know, um, but that's a wonderful learning. That if you don't do certain kinds of self care, you become dangerous. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's really interesting that you talk about you know how what your mental health state is when it happens. Over the course of the last six years with this transformation that I've gone down, my mental health has gone through the roof, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can handle anything. And yep. and, and as, as I was healing, my ability to reflect and uh, look back at my parents, right? Because I'm a child of divorce. That's that's my big trauma, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I realized that they were just doing the best they could with the tools they had available. They experienced shitty childhoods as well. And that they can't be held liable forever 
for the impact that they had on my life. And as soon as I did that, hey, presto, I was able to absolve that part of it and then free myself to then move forward in my life. What are your thoughts on that? I'm going to say that one of the really overlooked self-care practices, like you talked about exercise, that's crucial. But one of the other practices that I see all the time that's missing is thank you. Um, Gratitude, appreciation, but a willingness to say thank you. Because that keeps things in perspective. So if like if you have a practice of a little bit, like when you wake up in the morning, you recognize like how lucky you are to have food and drinking water and you know a body that works, you're gonna be a lot less piss offable. And and if you have a partner, you think you said you had a fiance, yeah. if you make it a point every single day to remember that she's choosing to come back to you. She doesn't have to. You're not that great. You know, she's choosing to love you. Thank you. Thank you goes such a long way, both for self-care, but for cultivating forgiveness. Because when the partner or the universe or your dad doesn't do what you want, You've built up a accounting system where they have capital drawn. And that's a very important self-care practice in this. Thank you. Well, it's funny you say that, Fred. It's exactly what I did after I had the fight with, with Anna um, when, we were, when we resolved it. Because um, I said some things in that argument as well that were really hurtful and you know, you can't undo some of these things. Um, and I'm and I said, I'm gonna wake up every morning and, and continue to be to be grateful for you know the wonderful abundance that you bring into my life and 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 it and it does make a huge difference. Um and but that I wanna also articulate the thank you part. Not just the gratitude about my life being enhanced but the affirmative decision to let them know and to act grateful. Like this, there can be a certain narcissism in noticing the good in your life. That's only part of it. The other piece is is a thank you, which gives you the willingness to tolerate things that aren't the way you want because you recognize like, look, Look what I have. So when we get really pissed off, it's usually because we're in a gratitude vacuum. Like we backed ourselves in a corner. We're not seeing the good at all. And so that's how often we get triggered to really say the wrong thing because we have like shut down the part of us that notices. It's a really great distinction, Fred. Uh, and, I, and I hadn't focused on much of that at all. And even as you say it, I can feel a warmth sort of come through my down my chest. Exactly. Exactly. 
and you soften, right? Like your mind softens, your body softens, your breathing softens, and all of a sudden, you're more forgiving. Just by, just by that, you, you have a wider lens to deal with what life throws you. And I think arming myself with these these amazing tips and and guidelines is going to be so imperative going forward. I, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about lead up, leading up to this interview was in my in my uh, thirst for knowledge, I'm uncovering things about the way that the world works that aren't fair, that aren't that aren't just that are downright dastardly in the way that you know, foods manufactured and, and some of the agendas of some of these um, people in the world. And to take on the, that burden of knowledge can be overwhelming at times, and I need an antidote to that. So I think what you're talking about is going to be crucial for me to be able to just move forward with my life just in general, let alone. No question, no question. But if you if you – if you look at it as like, what can I do? And I sense that you've been going through a lot of this. What can I do to help me go through this life with as much like goodwill and enjoyment as I can? A lot of that means that you're going to treat other people decently. And you're going to let them off the hook when they don't treat you exactly the way you want it. Like you can't, you can't have happiness without that. You can't because people don't always behave the way you want them to. So there is some decision about whether or not you really want to be happy, because if you really want to be happy, you have to reserve a little space to say, Hey, I know what you did is awful, and I'll suffer for it for a while, but I don't want to carry that with me for the next two years. Like, it's not, that's, that's not my I want out of this life. So there's a quality of forgiveness that really is necessary for the kind of life that I think you're looking to have, which is, you know, appreciative. And, and thoughtful, but it also includes how do you deal with unkindness and the evils in the world? You can't, there's no just Pollyanna, everything's light, nice, and pretty, because that's not life. In order to hold that, you have to have strategies for dealing with the stuff that's not so nice. So just on that, Fred, what is a really great template or phrasing or words that you can use to start off that forgiveness journey? To start it? For example, yeah, for example, you know, uh, someone that I'm aggrieved or, or have it, had an issue with, how do I start the apology? Or what do I say? I'm, I'm going to say it, it also needs to start somewhere in the past 
with some kind of question of like, what do, what do I really want to be happy in this world? Because if you do want to be happy, then you have to have some strategies for dealing with the things that are ugly or not so good. You have to think about it before it happens. So if you had reminded yourself that my dad's difficult, um, he doesn't do what I want him to do, and it really drives me crazy. If you had just reminded yourself of that, then you could have picked up the phone or in whatever way you had the argument, and you could have talked, you know, reminded yourself, stay cool. Just stay cool. Because the, the bigger question is, and, and I know this is trite, but do I want to win? Do I want to be right? Do I want to have my way? Or do I want to enjoy this life? Like sometimes they'll be in conflict. And, and you have to have pre-thought it. So like when people wake up in the morning, they say, I want to have a good day. And somebody cuts them off in the freeway. They remind themselves, I want to have a good day. So don't lose the next 20 minutes by getting pissed off at that person. You have to have a reason. That reason can't be developed in the middle of an argument. It's, it's got to precede that. Sometimes it's love. You know, if you love your partner enough, then you love them and not, not to escalate an argument. If you've decided that, you know, I'll give myself a pass to get pissed off, but it's important to me to apologize, then when you get pissed off, a week later, you'll know that you need to apologize. Like you have to, you have to have decisions and you have to have goals in your life. Otherwise, you'll just be like an animal reacting minute to minute to your life. And, and, and you'll never be happy that way. You have to have somebody guiding the ship. Now, once you've made a decision that I do want to have a good day and I do want to have a good month, and some of that is going to come from not driving myself crazy about how annoying or difficult or evil other people are, then when you're in the moment, a 15-second meditation practice will calm you down. You know, like it doesn't, it's the decision that's so hard. It's not the implementation. A 15-second meditation practice of taking a few breaths into your belly, relaxing your belly, remembering that you love somebody, all of that just, and then you've manifested that decision to not get too bent out of shape. Another display. Simple things like if you're arguing face to face with somebody and you don't want to, is all you have to do is turn away from them and the argument will go down a bit. Like if you just turn your body a little to the side so you're not getting the threat right in front of you, or you take a big step backward, it quiets down a little. But you have to have a reason. And, and we're in charge of those reasons. 
Fred, we've spoken about some pretty heavy stuff today. Uh, I'd <laughs> love, I'd love to hear what your proudest forgiveness result is in your career. I'm, I'm going to say I can only answer that um, in uh, regarding my own life when I've done the right thing in situations like you and your dad, I had a long-standing disagreement with my mother-in-law and, and we did not see things well. And there were a number of years when she was unkind to me. But um, I remember very clearly like when she apologized to me when she was getting old, you know, Fred, I think back in the day, I wasn't that nice to you. And I'm sorry, you know, she was getting Alzheimer's and it was, and I remember getting her apology. And then I realized that that wasn't enough. So the next time I visited them, I apologized to her. Because what I said to her was, I thank you very much for your apology. She didn't remember giving me the apology, but she was fine. I mean, she was, but I said, you know, that's incomplete. Um, it takes two to tangle. And I owe you an apology for all the times. And you and I both contributed to suffering on my wife's part because we weren't getting along. That's not your fault. So I want to apologize for all the times that I blamed you for that. You didn't do any of this alone. So I hope you accept my apology. And we hugged and that was the end. But that's, if there's something to be proud of, it would be that. Or 30 years ago, when I made peace with this friend who had betrayed me um, and started the forgiveness project, like, I couldn't teach without that. Otherwise, I have nothing to teach. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm just a mouth yapping. So if you don't do it, it doesn't mean anything. That's uh, that's your good friend, Sam, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, I, exactly. And for the folks listening, this is this is a man who has been directly responsible for repairing decades of trauma from fighting in Northern Ireland with the IRA, <laughs> people that have been murdered in wars, um, countless other repairs that have been done, and he chooses to talk about his mother-in-law, which I think is um, just exemplifies the kind of character you have, uh, Dr. Fred. So I thank you very much for that. Fred, do you have any concluding thoughts for our audience today? You know, when people ask me about forgiveness, um, I say a couple of things. One, um, it can be secular or religious. You know, like you can do it for Jesus or Moses or Muhammad or Buddha. You know, it doesn't matter. It can be it can be this or it can be because you don't want to raise your heart rate. It's the same thing. Um doesn't matter how you get there, but different people get there differently. And all the paths are valuable. But that's because forgiveness can be 
practice and you can teach yourself how to do it. Like, yeah, I have written a, a very successful book called Forgive for Good that's helped lots and lots and lots of people. But there's other methods, you know, it's like, but it's it's something you can learn and practice. It's not weird, esoteric stuff. That's the the most important thing. The second is we've done research. Like it's good for physical health. It's good for emotional health. It's good for relationship health. You have a fiance. There are um, a small handful of qualities that show up in in the research on what makes long-term marriage successful. One of those small handful of qualities is forgiveness. You, it's almost impossible to spend 30 years with somebody and not forgive them. Otherwise, you'll kill them or you'll leave. So it's, you know, it's, it's like an important thing day to day. You don't want to just focus on the wars and, the, and the, the bad things. It's like you want to be nice to your mother-in-law if you can. You know, that, 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 that's how I see it. So that would be the, the last thing that that I would say. I can't tell you how grateful I am to have this this experience with you, Dr. Fred. And and uh, for people that haven't read your book, I highly highly recommend it because it's just got the structure, and we go into way more detail of what we've just scratch, scratched tonight. Uh, forgive for good. A Proven uh, Prescription for Health and Happiness, and you've written a couple of other books as well. Where can people find you? Where can they find me? Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I don't look for people to find me so much at this stage in my career. Um, <laughs> but I, I do, <laughs> I do have a website. And like you found me by email, I'm sure that's available. Um, but if they want to learn more, um, all they have to do is Google my name. And there's probably a hundred YouTube videos about me teaching stuff. So, you know, to learn more about this, um, it's not hard to find. And that's a, a nice thing about this age where you can just go out there and learn stuff. So, anyway, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed the conversation. And I hope your dad reaches back out to you. Me too. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Fred Luskin. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training well i will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g H-E-R-O-E-S dot com.